At the risk of embarrassing the teens, I wanted to add my sentiments to what Hiram said this morning. Wasn't it exciting after church to see so many who are in a transition point in life who are being honored because of their record of faithfulness and their desire to grow in faith? And as we watched, because several of you are up here that we saw this morning, you're an influence already. You're a great influence that is greater than you even know. As we see you here tonight, it's uh, sitting up front. We appreciate that. We also see your faith. I think about Josiah. Josiah was so small when he took the throne and when he was a teenager. You think about how he at least extended the life of the nation before it captivity. And so we're watching you, but in a good way. And we appreciate your example. If you were to Google the phrase, spiritual formation... Be prepared, or if it's perhaps even books about spiritual formation, you're going to get flooded with a lot of results. And as you look at spiritual formation as a phrase or a thought, it's a buzzword, especially in some religious circles over the last 20 years or so. In fact, I was listening to a podcast, and in that particular podcast, they were talking about spiritual formation and how it's going on, that you're becoming something or someone. And they made the excellent point that this is happening whether you're trying your hardest or if you're not trying at all. You're in the process of becoming something or someone. I suppose if we were to ask people if they liked what they were becoming, that so many would say that they do not and yet are making the very decisions that are leading them in that direction. Now, if you were to try to put a definition to spiritual formation, you'll find that the definition somewhat goes like this, that spiritual formation is the attempt to build a deeper relationship with God. And if that's the case, if we begin to examine both the words that make up that phrase, what about the word formation? If you think about the word formation, really it's the idea or the process of being shaped or formed or molded into something. And spiritual, if you will, is a contrast word with physical, your flesh, your physical body. And so spiritual formation may be, that is, the things that we're being shaped and formed and molded to do spiritually may be leading us closer to God or it may be leading us away from God. Our habits of spiritual formation may be leading us to take on a rival or a substitute to God. But I don't think that there is a subject that we could study that is more relevant to our existence than spiritual formation. Not only does it affect every day of your life, it affects every moment of your life. The topic or the thought of spiritual formation is a topic that the Bible takes up literally from its beginning to its end. If you think about how the Bible begins in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible tells us that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, Genesis 2 and verse 7. But he also was not being formed only physically, but he was being made in the image of God, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. And it extends all the way to the end of the Bible. 
When you think about how John ends his revelation, in Revelation 21 and verse 1, the Bible tells us that at the end, God is going to form new heavens and new earth. Peter adds, 2 Peter 3 and verse 13, in which righteousness dwells. And at every point in between, Genesis 2 and Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, we see that we're being shaped or formed and that God wants it to be such that we're coming closer to Him. To talk about spiritual formation is to talk about whether or not we're building a closer relationship with God. And I suggest to you, and this is perhaps a statement that's particularly relevant on a Sunday night, that being close to God is not simply a function of walking inside the church house doors every time they're open for worship or Bible study. That it's not as simple as being involved in the work of the church. That this closeness to God is not simply achieved when you sit and you stand in front of a class and you teach it, a Bible class. It's not even formed a close relationship simply by standing and preaching a sermon. It doesn't happen simply by becoming a deacon or a preacher or an elder or a vision group leader. But God wants us... And everything that Scripture shows us is that God wants us to have the habits that will bring us close to Him. There's nothing that God wants more than that we have an intimate relationship with Him. So how do we go about to try to determine how to do that? I think the passage that was read to us is one among several that we could look at, but I believe it contains so much that can help us. If we're going to build a close relationship with God, Paul says, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There in that passage... As we use it as a foundation, we find three habits that can help us to draw closer to God. How are we going to do that? You know, when we think about what happened in the lesson this morning, as we look at the life of Nebuchadnezzar, a man who was vicious on the front end and who was victorious, it seems, on the back end, a man who seemed to make progress in his relationship with God, we find ourselves not necessarily starting from that low a position, but we're striving to get as close to him as we can. What does Paul say that can help us? The first thing I think that he tells us is that we need to engage in right thinking. The Apostle Paul begins by talking about, or at least he focuses on what's on the inside. What are my thoughts like? I need to engage in right thinking. And here's how Paul sets that up. He gives a couple of words. He uses the word mind. And the word mind there is the psychological faculty of understanding. It's what causes us to deliberate and what helps us to choose and to decide. You'll also find that he uses that word that is in the New King James. It's to prove, to test. The idea is of examining. It's going through a mathematical process to be able to understand, to examine the, the genuineness of something. Is it what it claims to be? And maybe what we can do is we can think of what a gemologist does. When a gemologist takes a specific gem in his or her hand and puts it under a microscope and examines it or maybe knows enough about the business that with a naked eye or with a monocle can look at that and can see the difference between whether or not it's a diamond or cubic zirconia. 
That's what the Apostle Paul is saying that we are faced with doing. We've got to prove what the will of God is. It's a mental engagement. But you see, so much can keep us from doing what God wants us to do in order to come close to Him in our thinking. Because every day, when we leave the the insulation and the solace of being together and we go out into the world from Monday through Saturday, we are faced with external and internal pressures to think in a way that keeps us from growing closer to God. Peter talks about it, doesn't he, in 1 Peter chapter 4, in verse 3, he says that there are the desires of the Gentiles around you, the folks who were like they used to be. He says that they are entering into a thought process and they want you to do that. He says, in times past, you thought that way. But as often as not, it's what's going on inside of us. That's why the prophet Isaiah would say in Isaiah 55 and verse 7, let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Or why Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9, that the heart can be so easily deceived and and sickened. Who can understand it? But God wants us to see that this is where the battle begins in coming close to Him. Here's where the formation starts. He says through Solomon in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. When we begin to see what, the, what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 12, we ask ourselves, is there a passage that can help us to think about the kind of thought patterns That will lead us closer to God. There's a lot of different places we could go. But I want you to think about a passage that probably comes top of mind. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. And he's been encouraging them to have a mind. A mind that puts others above self. A kind of mind that is described very well in Philippians chapter 2 as the mind of Christ. And so now he's building to the end of that letter. And as he gets to the end he says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honorable... Whatever things are right, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are reputable, if there's any excellence or anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Very interesting word there, dwell. The idea of that word dwell is to, is to keep a file, to open up a file in which you're inserting material that you can take out at some future point when you need it. You know, just a few weeks ago, we went through tax season. I know probably most of you started in January. Some of us may have waited to April, but there's a part of that process, right? And especially when we itemized in a different way than we do now, we kept these meticulous records. So you have all these documents and you have receipts. And I don't know, at least it used to be that the standard procedure was, the IRS says, that you need to hang on to those documents and those receipts for seven years. I started filing taxes in 1992. I have documents and I have receipts all the way back to 1992. IRS says seven years. I say, why take any chances? If they audit, then I can pull it out and I can produce it. What the Apostle Paul is saying is, here is a file that I want you to fill so that when it comes time for spiritual formation to occur, that you can pull these things out. And so he gives us six things that we can put in this very important file. And I want you to remember that at the end of this, if we put these things in our file, what's going to happen is is that we're going to find ourselves closer to God. Let's look at them. He says, first of all, I want you to think true thoughts. It's as straightforward as that. What he's saying is don't lie to yourself. And we do that. 
In fact, it's a tendency. Sometimes we do that because we don't know what's true. That's why Bible study is so important. It's why it's important for us not to miss an opportunity to listen to God's Word as it's proclaimed, to engage in that as we study God's Word together. And if we don't know what's true on a given subject, then we've got to be diligent workmen that get into the Word and find out what's true. But another way in which this is emphasized for us is how often New Testament writers say, do not be deceived. I'm sure I may have missed some, but I counted four. Paul uses three of them. James uses one. And what he's saying is that God wants us to be close to Him in deceptive thinking. We don't think true thoughts to ourselves when we're not honest with ourselves. What happens is is we find ourselves further and further from God. For example, in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, he says, Do not be deceived. The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he gives this list of activities that is unrighteousness. And he says if we think that we or somebody else can engage in these things and be good with God, then we're deceiving ourselves. He says don't because unrighteousness or the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't think that way. A little later in that letter he says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33, he says do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. You know, when we begin to see what he's saying there, what we might do is have virtual companions that are telling us something that are leading us away from closeness to God. And it's not always what you think it is. Perhaps we think that this is a principle that young people especially need. But let me ask you, how much time are you spending with the virtual companion of cable news? Is it filling your mind with the things that are true, that are right in God's eyes? What about social media posts? Are are they leading us to think those things that are true? Furthermore, we might ask ourselves, what about Hollywood and its messaging? As we listen to it, is it affecting us? Maybe we say, look, I can think those things. I I can expose myself to that, and it's not affecting how my relationship with God is. But it also has to do with the real people in our lives, the people that we have face-to-face interaction. And they voice views that are at odds with what God says. What Paul is saying is don't be deceived. It affects you and who you are and how you think. But then he says, remember in Galatians 6 and verse 9, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. But I can tell myself, well, I'll just experiment. I'll just do it once. I'll just do it a little that I can expose myself to this and it's not going to hurt me, but I wonder how many addictions have been fueled by deceptive thinking that says, I'm going to indulge just in moderation. And then James brings it home when he says, don't be deceived, James 1 and verse 16, about who tempts you or how you are tempted to sin. So in all of this, what Paul is saying is as you're developing your relationship with God and you're striving to come close to Him, Tell the truth with yourself. Be honest about what you're thinking and make sure that it's honest in the eyes of God. And then you'll notice that he also says we're to think honorable thoughts. This idea of honor is esteemed. It's worthy of respect. And basically the idea is that if people could read our minds, it would cause them to look up and it would cause them to see God. 
If we're honest with ourselves, sometimes if our thoughts were exposed and people could see what we were thinking, it might have the opposite effect. And if I don't feel close to God, this may be a place where I can go and ask myself, are my thoughts such that they are respectable, that they honor God so that people would look up and see Him? And then he says, think right thoughts. That word is used almost a hundred times, and it's used usually translated as righteous or just. But when you see what the Apostle Paul is saying here, and you examine how it's used throughout the New Testament, there are two ways in which it's used, and we're not surprised. We need to be righteous and just with God. And we need to be righteous and just with one another. Jesus, when, he was try- when they were trying to stump him, the last question that Jesus faced was, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus gave him one and one to grow on. He says that you are to love God above all and love your neighbor as yourself. When we think about right thoughts, we need to ask ourselves, are my thoughts about God right? Is my view of God broader than the Bible? Is my view of God more narrow than the Bible? But what kind of thoughts am I thinking about my brother and my fellow man? And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves not thinking right about our brother while striving in some way to try to be close to God. And the Bible makes clear that we can't do that. Are we merciful in our thoughts about our brother? Do we, to make ourselves feel bigger, think those thoughts or act on thoughts that would cause us to try to reduce somebody else so we can feel better about ourselves? Are we scouring the sewer of life and trying to find ammunition to shoot, to kill with regard to our brother? What Paul would indicate with this idea of thinking right thoughts is, if we're not thinking right about my brother, I can't know his intentions, I can't know his thoughts, I can't know his his or her heart. I need to be very careful about my thoughts about him or her. Because judgment will be without mercy for those who have shown no mercy. James chapter 2 and verse 13. And then what Paul would tell us is that we need to think pure thoughts. You know, really, the idea is don't think dirty thoughts. And when I say that, what comes to our mind? We usually think about the sexual. And that's certainly a part of this. Our thoughts need to be sexually pure. And when you see in Scripture, there is this idea that we've got to be pure in our thoughts about those who are not our spouse. Paul addressed that with the church at Thessalonica, a young church in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 through verse 5. But Jesus dealt with it in the very beginning of his preaching when he says, to be my disciple, you've got to be the pure in heart. And then he explains what that means in Matthew 5, 27, when he says, you have heard that it was said by those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whoever looks upon a woman to lust after her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. But pure thoughts, while it does deal with this, 1 Timothy 2 and verse 22 It also deals with other actions. We need to be pure in our thoughts when it comes to our motives and intentions in sharing God's Word. Did you know that's said twice in 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5? It's also said in Philippians 1 and verse 17. Here's Paul in prison and he says that there are some who are preaching from right motives, but there are some with uh, impure motives. It's the same word that Paul uses in Philippians 4 and verse 8. And are we pure in our thoughts about our brother and sister in Christ? Are we loving them pure-hearted and fervently? 1 Peter 1 and verse 22. And then he says, think lovely thoughts. You know, that literally means loving and lovable thoughts. 
Remember what we said a moment ago, you can't read somebody's mind, but so often we get the byproduct of uh, the thoughts that are had. When we think about those right, those lovely thoughts, you know, how can we have lovely thoughts if we are demonstrating that there's resentment and bitterness and envy in our actions, pettiness? And so what Paul says is, as you're striving to grow a closer relationship with God, your thoughts need to be lovely, but they also need to be respectable thoughts. Literally well thought of thoughts. Thoughts that are respectable with regard to how we think of one another. And do you see what we've been saying is, how do I draw closer to God? What habit can I form that will cause me to do that? Kyle Weens, who's the CEO and serial entrepreneur, says that when we're talking about the writing that we do virtually, when it comes to uh, Facebook uh, posts or statuses, or when it comes to blogs, or when it comes to company websites or emails, our words represent us. They are our representation even in our physical absence. He was talking about grammar, but the same is true of content. My thoughts need to be respectable, well thought of thoughts. And whatever's sitting in my heart, Jesus says that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34. And so what Paul says in Ephesians 4 verse 22 is be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That can be done by looking at passages like Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8 which can help us to have the mind that proves that passes the test in Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2. What God wants from us in the habits of our life is that we train ourselves to think the kind of thoughts that in the process are going to build our relationship with others as we build our relationship with God. I venture to say that this is probably a universal statement. If we have dysfunctional relationships, if there are problems in our interactions with one another, then we are not close to God because it rises and falls together. If we want to be close to God, we need to engage in right thinking. But then number two, we need to practice the right behaviors. Go back to Romans chapter 12 for just a moment and you'll see him encouraging the right kind of behavior that if we're going to be close to God, it's built on thoughts, but those thoughts lead to right behaviors. What behaviors? Well, if you read the rest of Romans chapter 12, you see all these admonitions, these imperatives, these commands. He says things like exercise spiritual gifts. Find out what it is that you can do to help the body grow and then get in there and do that. Romans 12 and verse 9, in your love for one another, let it be without hypocrisy, without pretense. Cling to what's good. Abhor what's evil. Verse 9. Be a servant. Verse 11. Be somebody who is uh, uh, reverent, somebody who is prayerful. Verse 12. Help the needs of strangers, verse 13. Be hospitable, verse 13. You make sure that you are kind to your persecutors, verse 14 and verse 17 through 21. You find yourself empathetic with the problems that other people are having. If they're rejoicing, rejoice with them. If they're weeping, weep with them, verse 15. Be united, verse 16. Be humble, verse 16. God is saying, I want you to think about how it is that you live. And as you live, that's how you grow closer to me. If you live in the way that I'm laying out for you. And he gives us three imperatives. The first thing he says is that we are to present our bodies a sacrifice. 
He talks about what that sacrifice ought to be. He actually gives us three modifications of it. That it is to be a living sacrifice. It's to be a holy sacrifice. It's to be an acceptable sacrifice. When we look at this living sacrifice, the idea of sacrifice is one that was known to the ancient world. You know, as Paul speaking to Jews and Gentiles, if he points to his Jewish audience, they understand sacrifices. It's in their background of the old law. They realized that there were all these different sacrifices that they were to make depending on what the situation was. But the Gentiles could too. The Gentiles, they were offering up sacrifices. They could walk down the streets of Rome and as they did, they saw the meat that was being offered to their uh, gods, the various ones. And maybe that's a little bit of a problem for us because we can't go to downtown Bowling Green in 2023 and see somebody offering up a sacrifice there but the concept of sacrifice is timeless. You see, because what it is an indication of is that we are giving something precious to deity. We are surrendering something for something else. And that sacrifice is to be living. It's not invisible. It's something that our friends and others can see as they look into our lives. It is not something we have to tell others that we're rendering. They can watch it take place. It's holy. We might ask ourselves, well, what's unholy? And as we think of that, we see that these holy sacrifices in God's Word are those that trend in that other direction. And they're acceptable to God. Again, we don't have to think. We don't have to feel about that, he tells us. But then there's a second admonition that he gives, and that is that we're not to be conformed to the world. As the idea of conform means to be changed or molded. To be like something or someone else. When I preached in Virginia, I had the habit or picked up the hobby of going relic hunting. And the relic that I found most often when I went out relic hunting was bullets. And what I didn't know when I started this particular hobby was that those bullets weren't all the same size. And they weren't all the same shape. You know, when it came time for you to realize the, the bullet that you were going to shoot in your gun, it was going to be based on the one that was placed in a mold. They would take hot lead and they would put it in those molds and that would determine the size and the shape and the markings on that bullet. What I just handed out, one's grape shot, it's round. It's different from the one that, that Willow's holding that has all those markings. That would have come out of a rifle. And then David is holding one that would have been really small and came out of a pistol. They're different from one another because... They had different purposes. God is saying that the world has a purpose and a child of God has a purpose. And they're not the same. What mold are we being poured into? All of us are. We're being shaped. And what God is saying is, I have you here not to be shaped by the thinking of those around you. Paul says, if you want to grow closer to me, let me shape you. Let me form you. Don't be conformed to this world. And then he says, I want you to be transformed. I want you to be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Why? That you may prove what the will of God is. And what is the will of God? It's good. James says that every gift from God is good, and that includes the will of God. But it's also acceptable. I know what's right by what God's Word says. I'm transformed 
by God's will that shows him what's acceptable. And it's perfect. It's perfect. Why? Because it's God's word. You know, what's interesting about these three imperatives in Romans chapter 12 is that two are positive and one is negative. Maybe one of the misnomers about God in the world is, is that God is just trying to eliminate our fun. He doesn't want us to enjoy this life. But isn't it remarkable how often God is not saying, I, not just I don't want you to do this, but look, this is what I would like you to do. This is what's going to help you if you'll do it. And another thing I notice about these commands is that for at least two of them, God tells us why he wants us to do it. He gives us a reason for the command. We realize that God doesn't have to do that. God, when he tells us to do something, we should do it simply because of who it is that's telling us. But God is saying, I know what's best for you, and I want what's best for you. And as we go about to set the habits in our life, What's going to help us with that is to follow these imperatives because God wants us to be close to Him. And He says, present your body a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to this world and be transformed. And as a result of that, you and I will have an intimate relationship together. Then third, will you notice with me that what Paul tells us is if we're going to form the kind of habits that will bring us closer to God, then we have got to develop right feelings. Dave Allen, a good friend of mine, is retired Air Force. And he told me that there was once a six-month stretch in his service where he did not spend the night in the same time zone any two nights in a row. That's mind-boggling to me. He was every day on a C-130 hopping from place to place to deal with problems in different parts of the world. And he said in six months' time, after a month of that, he was so exhausted from not being able to sleep that finally he just fell out, that wherever he was when it was night, he was able, his body was able to go to sleep. He said, my body clock was rewired. My circadian rhythm was altered. I don't know, that sounds pretty cool, but what doctors say is, is that's not something you want to do for a long period of time. Did you know that if you keep your circadian rhythm altered for too long, it can lead to blindness and it even leads to a rare form of cancer? question is, can that happen to us spiritually? Can we have our spiritual clocks altered? Can we have our spiritual circadian rhythm altered? The Bible says that we can. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 2 says that our conscience can be seared with a hot iron. Paul says in Ephesians 4 and verse 19 that we can become past feeling. In 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3, that we can be turned from truth toward fables we also, in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 11, we can believe a lie. We can exchange the truth for a lie, Romans 1 and verse 25. And when that takes place, what we think and believe is changed by what we begin to practice. Well, how do we combat that? The Apostle Paul says in part what we've got to do is we've got to develop zeal. We've got to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. He says down in Romans chapter 12 and verse 11. But what is zeal? Zeal is simply energy and enthusiasm for a certain course or a certain objective. But did you know that that word is used negatively and positively in the Bible? Negatively. The word is used to describe jealousy. It is in Acts 13.45 in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20. But oh, when it's used in a positive sense. Like Jesus. John 2 and verse 17, he says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. 
In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 7, the Bible says that the Corinthians were moved to repent by their zeal. And then Epaphras. In Colossians 4 and verse 13, he was deeply concerned. That's our word. For Christians living in different cities. And so what God wants us to do is to have right passions. But you know, the fact of the matter is, as we're running the marathon of life, there are things that can douse our flame of passion for God. Doubt, grief, a lack of resiliency, the trivial pursuits of this life, a lack of purpose, a lack of a feeling of significance. You know, God wants us to be zealous He wants us to be zealous in a way that shows that we want to follow Him. And In Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul was dealing with some zealous people, all right? He says that my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and setting about to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Romans 10, 1 through 3. They had zeal, but what was the problem? It was a zeal that was not based on the knowledge of God's Word. But the second part of that is that they didn't know God's righteousness. And the third part of that is that they had set about to establish their own righteousness. They were saying, God, I'll follow you, but I'm going to follow you according to my own rules. And that's actually rebellion. And God says, you've not submitted yourself to the righteousness of God. It's dangerous in our relationship with God if we have a zeal without knowledge. I dare say that probably does not represent the life of any one of us in here. But here is what we may struggle with. Maybe it's one of the things I mentioned a moment ago. That something comes along in our life, maybe little by little, incrementally, and it begins to pour water on our passion and our zeal. And the next thing we know, we find ourselves... Distant from God because our heart is far from Him. What do we do when the flame of passion goes out in our hearts? How can we renew that? You see, I know that I'm not going to be close to God if I've lost my passion for Him. And passion is not something necessarily that's palpable, that has to be just shining brightly all the time, and people see us just barely able to contain ourselves. Perhaps it may be that way at times, but it's not usually. What it is is it's that slow burn that's developed by certain habits. Think about this. If we want to restore our passion, what we've got to do is put on Christ. Romans chapter 13 and verse 14. I need to use Him as my own going model. I put Him on at baptism. Galatians 3 and verse 27. But I've got to keep putting Him on. And the other things that I'm going to suggest to you all comes back to this point. It flows back downstream to this. That I have got every day to put Him on. I put Him on in study. Meaningful study. And in prayer. But I've also got to... Not only put on Christ, I've got to exhibit honesty. And I mean that in a specific sense. I mean that in the James chapter 5 and verse 16 sense. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man does much good. I may need to confess publicly. I may need to confess concretely, specifically, and then once I've done that, I need to surround my people, who, myself with people who are passionate. 
You know, the one that walks with the wise becomes wise, according to Proverbs 13 and verse 20. But I believe that that's true of many virtues, and it's certainly true of passion. I need to surround myself with people who are passionate themselves. I've got to be honest, though, with where I am to practice it. But I've also got to love the right things in the right way. I can never let a day go by that I absence myself from the presence of God. I have got to honestly evaluate my affections and ask myself, are they leading me in the right way? And do I understand that God loves me like no one else can? I need to love the right things in the right way. But not only that, I've got to make sure that I have purpose and meaning in my life. It's got to be the right meaning. Oz Guinness says, as modern people, we have too much stuff to live with and too little to live for. Do my affections and passions line up with God? Then I also need to practice sacrificial generosity. You know, there was a study done in 2000. I've not seen a study. It was a massive study. I haven't seen one like it since then. But what was suggested in that study was that for every $1 that was donated, it was associated with an increase in one's income of $4.35. Now, maybe we don't want that to be our motivation, that I'm going to give so that I get more back, but statistically speaking, that's what takes place. Also, it was suggested, not long after that, that 43% more likely you are to be happy if you volunteer than your counterparts who don't volunteer. And here's a remarkable one. Among seniors, it was found that if you volunteered your time, you were 40% less likely to die in a given year than your counterparts who didn't volunteer who were of the same age and health level. You know, I believe there is great application to the principle in Luke 6 and verse 38. Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, shaken down, pressed together, and overflowing shall men give unto your bosoms. Yes, sometimes the mechanism is other people. There's a principle out there that says we give because it will be given, it'll be given to us. But the greatest thing that we're seeking to get back when we give is that fighting the good fight of faith that comes in pursuing the right things. And there's nothing that's more precious than in practicing sacrificial generosity and feeling the nearness of God. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, in those very basic tenets, is giving us some habits that can help us to be close to God. On June 30th, 1859... Charles Blondin was the first to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. There were 100,000 people present, I suppose, on both sides of the falls, 275 feet on one side, 425 feet on the other side, and a a raucous cheers. He, He made that traversing, but he did it again and again and again over time. He did it on stilts. He did it in a sack. And he did it famously, pushing a wheelbarrow in front of him. A lot of these feats he did over and over again. And on one particular occasion, the famous incident occurred where he was pushing that wheelbarrow across and one man blurted out from the audience, I bet you could do that with a man inside. Blondin, without changing his facial expression, said, I can. Would you like to be the one that does? He nervously declined. But I think spiritually that's what happens so much in our lives. I believe, I trust 
that Jesus is able to, but I'm not sure that I want to put my life in his hands and let him lead me forward. I'm just not sure. When we think about our spiritual lives, we're not, we're not remaining static. We're either drawing closer to him or we're moving further away from him. But when we look at a passage like Romans 12, there is no doubt where God wants. He wants us to form the kind of habits in our thoughts, in our behaviors, and in our feelings that lead us to have an intimate relationship with Him. It will be seen certainly in our fruits, but it is this evolution of character, this metamorphosis that Paul talks about that's slowly happening where we find ourselves becoming more like the image of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. And that's what we're after. Because we want, as God's people, to be close to Him. A closeness that doesn't just occur when we're in here, but that occurs everywhere we are, all the time. This evening the question is, where are you in relationship with God? All of us are striving to be closer. Maybe we find ourselves in position outside of Christ. We've not yet put Him on, and we need to do that. May I encourage you not to delay that. To not spend another moment outside of Christ. If you're ready to put Him on, He wants to be near to you. Or perhaps you find yourself as a child of God, just drifting. And you look up and you see that you're so much further away from God than you once were. Perhaps it is you want that restored. The moment of invitation, this expedience that we go through at the end of each service is designed to give us that opportunity if we need to publicly do that. All of us find ourselves at at different points in life struggling. Perhaps you find yourself in need of prayers for strength. If you need to respond to the invitation, won't you right now as we stand and sing.